Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast with me, EG Editor Sam McClary. This episode is the third of four special EG Property Podcasts that take a look at the lessons learned after the forced changes we've all had to make during the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I'm joined by experts from Savills, Max Fordham, Nuveen and DLA Piper to try and make sense of our city's future in a post-pandemic world. Over the next 45 minutes, we'll talk about what cities will look like and how they'll operate. We ask whether the hustle and bustle will come back as quickly as it disappeared, or whether our cities will have changed forever. All of that, and so much more. Just one word of warning before you do dive in for your big listen of the day, however. At times, Susan's connection is a little bit dodgy, so you may have to concentrate just a touch harder. Now I know you'll be engrossed already, so that won't be too much of an ask. So, you know what to do. Sit back with your cuppa, lace up your trainers for a little outdoor time with your favourite property podcast, or however else you like to consume your regular EG hour or treat. And enjoy. No one could have imagined the hand dealt to cities this year. Imagery of major cities where we wouldn't have been surprised to have seen tumbleweed blowing across the streets, flooded the internet, wildlife, goats in some cases took over. People and business and the hustle bustle disappeared. The rule book on what a city was, was torn up. Cities are being reimagined and this podcast will discuss what that reimagination will look like and what city investors, developers, dwellers and workers have learned from this most unexpected of years. And to help me in that discussion, I have gathered four experts um, from around the real estate world to, to help us. And I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves very shortly and and ask her the, ask, answer the first of those big questions that we're going to be asking today. And that is, what is the single biggest change that cities have had to cope with during COVID? And how have they responded to that? And I'm going to throw that question first and the introduction, of course, to Sophie. Thank you. Yes, so I'm Sophie Chick and I head up our world research team at Savills and I also lead on the sustainability and ESG research in an urban environment. Um, Really interesting question and and sort of many to pick from, but I I think probably the most obvious um, challenge that cities have had to cope with is the change in terms of people not actually being in city centres and um, being forced to work from home. And I would say it's less about sort of how cities are responding to that, but more interesting to see how both employers and employees are responding. So um, I think a number of surveys that have been done, including some that we've done ourselves, show that employees definitely want more flexibility in the future, um, but also that um, businesses are having a look at what they actually need space for Um, but I would say that one thing has become really clear over the past year and that is the sort of the importance of having an office and having a central space to bring people together Um, and I think that um, is going to be really important going forward. Excellent thanks Sophie. Um, Same question and uh, introduction Um, I'm going to pass over to Andrew next. Thanks, uh, Andrew Rich here, and I am the fund manager for the European Cities Fund at Nuveen Real Estate. Uh, and as the name cleverly suggests, it's a strategy that's 
very much to focus on the thesis that investing in large, successful cities long term is the way to go. Uh, and certainly up until 2020, um, that was a strategy that had made a lot of sense and resonated with investors. Uh, 2020 things have been a little bit different and you know and to, to echo the sentiments really it's it's all about the lack of people and any business that relies on people um, you know fundamentally can't continue in the same way I don't really include offices in that I think what we've seen is that actually the majority of occupants of office space whatever their business type is actually can continue their um, business you know, from um, remote areas, so with their employees working at home. So while their offices might be pretty empty, the impact on their ability to go about their business and generate profits uh, is a lot less pronounced than all of the hospitality, for example, which I think is the obvious area. I think what's amazed me, though, is just seeing how quickly and innovatively so many hospitality businesses have responded to that challenge you know, from the likes of um, the, the pizza companies that all of a sudden started sending out, uh, you know, build your own pizza in a frying pan kits back in lockdown one, um, you know, finding ways to make additional income streams when they can't actually get people into their premises has been uh, what's been fascinating. Thanks, Andrew. And I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to come back to um, a little bit later the I guess the draw for the cities going forward, and because I think it's really interesting, um, you talked about sort of hospitality and 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 leisure there, in, in rather than offices. So we'll definitely come yeah. back to that as a thread. Um, but next, I'll pass over to Susan to introduce herself and um, answer that. Thing. Thank you so much, and uh, hi there, everyone. Um, I'm Susan Samuel. I'm a real estate partner at DLA Piper. I work mainly in the hospitality and leisure and consumer goods sectors, uh, acting for a wide variety of clients in those sectors. Um, single biggest change that we are really seeing is this acceleration of retail change that was already underway. Um, we've had, unfortunately, the dual challenges of a global pandemic and Brexit, which are hitting many businesses and retail sales in November. Um, really um, in terms of like for likes um, were very different difficult to measure because with lockdowns you know uh, and and stores being closed it is a very different landscape but what, one of the key metrics that I saw that was really interesting was that online sales have increased by 47 percent and we, we we have seen that as a threat and that sort of retail change that has been coming through over the years and leading to a great stress on bricks and mortar retailers being online retail. But out of necessity, really, really in the lockdowns, we've, we've seen that increase massively, particularly as consumers prepare for Christmas. And that gap between winners and losers in terms of online sales and also the, the stores that have been able to open has been widening with fashion sales being hit the hardest. Recently, the government announced the moratorium against forfeiture and debt enforcement has been extended until March 2021. So that's given a lot of businesses who have started to reopen in the last week or so um, some breathing space. What that does mean, however, for those businesses that are still trying to keep everything ticking along is that they do need to agree for the um, rent waivers or concessions or other arrangements with their landlords 
landlords who too are also under pressure with their own funders and having to um, make arrangements with those funders and lenders for waivers of their own debt facilities. So it's, it's that kind of almost card stack um, and, and domino stack um, almost coming down, pushing this down the road a little bit further into March 2021. What we don't want to see in March 20, or the end of March next year is a further raft of failures um, in, in, in amongst um, retail, hospitality and leisure businesses on the high street. But I think that perhaps is inevitable. Mm, yes, um, uh, I think you're, you're probably right there, sadly. Um, I think that will be, um, we'll definitely come back to this um, discussion as, as well, because I'm really interested to see um, what the the pressures that everyone has on income, whether you're a retailer or a landlord, what that will mean for investment into assets in a, in our in our cities. Are we going to see um, a much greater need, but not the ability to to re- regenerate, rejuvenate, um, rehabilitate? Is a word that someone mentioned to me this week um, for towns and cities. Um, we're going to see pressure on that going going forward. But before we get um, to those, I'm going to um, pass over last, but by no means least, to to Henry to introduce himself and tell us what he thinks the biggest um, single change cities have had to cope with during COVID is. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Henry Pelly. I'm a, a senior sustainability consultant and partner at Max Fordham. Um, and I lead all our designing for well-being work. So I have a I have a background in environmental psychology, which is why I do that work. So a lot of my my take will be based around kind of you know what we know in the social sciences about what people do in cities. Um, but I think it's a really obvious question, and I think you know um, Sophie and Andy have definitely picked up. Uh, I've made that point is that you know the biggest change is just much fewer people. But I think it's the um, what is um, most significant is the speed at which it happened. Um, I've been, you know, really interested in behaviour change in the perspective from sustainable consumption. And everyone says that, you know, it's so difficult to change people's behaviour. But what we saw was um, if there's a if there's an immediate reason for doing it, it can change so quickly. Um, and I think it, that speed of change, while lots of the things have happened, are things that we thought were coming. It was a way that it happened almost overnight um, in many cases. And uh for people, um, Zandi pointed out, you know, for office-based work, that work can continue from homes. But for people who rely on a, a sheer volume of people in cities, um, it's had a dramatically negative impact. Fantastic. Thanks, Henry. Let's um, let's talk about fewer people and whether fewer people is is going to last. Whether you know we are going to get them back into cities and whether fewer people is actually a bad thing or could it be a good thing um i'm going to throw that um first to andrew but my personal view is that this is not a long-term phenomenon there's a reason why you know more than half of the world's population live in urban areas uh, urbanization has been one of the major global mega trends over the last 10 years more and more people are choosing to live in cities. And that's because of you know our human nature at the moment is that's what we like. We like interaction with other people, um, hustle and bustle, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that by this time next year, with the rollout of vaccines, greater testing and everything else, uh, if you go into most major city centres, you won't see or feel any difference to this time last year. 
that's my view. Uh, clearly, it might turn out to be different, but I really do believe that you know there's there's long-standing um, behavioural behavioural reasons why cities are growing and growing, um, and they are not going to change overnight because of the pandemic. I mean, that said, there are going to be changes to some things, and I think we've already touched on um, the problems in retail, but they weren't a, a pandemic-led issue. That was a structural change in retail with the impact of online. Um, and 2020's just brought forward probably five years worth of transfer of sales to online versus physical shopping centres. I think city centres have shops, but people don't necessarily go into city centres in order just to shop. It's always for the overall experience uh, because they get alongside the shopping, all of the restaurants and the cultural aspects and everything else. So strong city centres, I think, will, will hold up fine. I completely agree. I think you will see that city centre remain the same. But I think the one of the interesting changes that I think may come from what we've experienced over the last year is that there's going to be more focus on local neighbourhoods as well. Um, so a focus on what people have in their immediate vicinity and it's become really noticeable over particularly I'd say the last six months that people are talking about this concept of a 15 minute city so if you don't live in easy access to the centre where you have all of those amenities working out what you have locally as well um, so that you have things like parks schools even you know potentially co-working spaces um grocery shops etc all within um, within your local neighborhood and I think this has really come from this reassessment of a work-life balance and wanting to have um, local amenities easily accessible and, and, and critically not just relying on cars but being able to walk or, or cycle to get them. It is a really interesting question about change but it's like and I think as Sophie and Ali picked up it's, it's like uh, you know it's not about you know if we look at you know Jeff Bezos's famous quote about it's not about looking at what's going to change in the next 10 years it's what's what's definitely going to stay the same and people have basic needs that that aren't going to change you know basically we want choice in what we do we want to be able to get better at things we do and we also want a sense of relatedness to each other those are the kind of the three basic psychological needs and uh, you know cities provide that in many ways um, you know, you do have, uh, you know, one of the great things about a big city is that you can find niche shops that do that do that like really cater for as effectively would be a small audience in a big in a in a in a town. But in a city, they can provide that really kind of niche niche need um, and things like that are going to stay. But I think the um, the kind of more commodified generic um, aspects are gonna are gonna go and you're gonna want to have that you know you're gonna have those services closer to where you're living so I think it's more about what I'm seeing is you know the change is going to be that the higher quality the really sort of top end of the market does well whereas the things that weren't that aren't particularly special um, are gonna sort of suffer I think. So it's almost like I suppose throughout this this whole sort of um, 10 months we've also been you know, understanding what it is that that matters to us, and and I'd never really thought actually about the the things that won't change because I think there has been so much chat about or oh, what's going to be different, but actually what is what is really important to us and what is gonna gonna stick around. Um, Susan, any any thoughts on on all of that from from you? Absolutely, I think drawing on what Henry, Sophie, and Annie have all said, it's it's it's. I think what we will see is this focus on placemaking and experience. 
um, owners and operators of businesses will be working really hard to attract customers and footfall into businesses and um, and, and properties. Um, and that's particularly so for shopping centres where we are seeing a drive to revenue-based leases. You know, uh, we, we, uh, owners of shopping centres will definitely want to have footfall and people coming into shopping centres so that you know, they go into stores and, and, and spend money. Offices too, I think, um, and you know, we're looking at this in our office in, in Leeds potentially and, and office move and, and that kind of whole focus on collaborative and, and meeting spaces versus cellular offices where we come in um, to the office every day is potentially going to be a big change for us and a lot of the clients that I have who are thinking about their office space in the future too have, um, have I think about some of the kind of um, issues. Thanks Susan. Andy? So when we think about things that might change as a result of this as well, I think there's a there's a high chance that there's going to be a difference um, in the level of change relative to the size of city. We were looking at the Google Mobility data um, last week with our research team, and you know, really interesting to see that the cities that went you know went back to having similar levels of activity, uh, both retail uh, and work locations uh, across Europe from the you know, middle of the pandemic to when we came out of lockdown. And the by far the cities which um, are still the most disrupted are the biggest ones, so London, Paris, um, Madrid, etc., um, where all the ones that are most back to normal quickest in terms of the activity in city centres are the relatively smaller ones. Um, and I'm not sure if it was Sophie or Susan who said something about a 15-minute city, and I've not heard that phrase before, but I wonder if that refers to the phenomenon where, you know, if you're in London and you don't have to go to your office and it's a one-hour-plus commute, you probably won't bother. And if you're in a smaller city uh, and you don't have to go to your office, but it's a 15-minute bus ride or a 15-minute cycle ride or something because it's a more manageable size of city, you actually will make the effort. And therefore, you know, all of the other activities um, in terms of shops, restaurants, etc., will be uh, much less affected over the long term than the bigger cities, where actually once you introduce that choice to people of being able to not come to the office every day, more of them will take it up. I think that's a really good point. And the, the whole idea of the 15-minute city being something that maybe only works for for smaller cities and maybe places like like London and some of the um, the other bigger cities around around the world need to be a collection of 15-minute cities. Yeah, well, that's you know, come back to another point that's been made: the extent to which strong suburban locations, uh, which have arguably been declining over the last um, 15 years, um, death of the high street, etc., actually starts to reverse as people, you know, maybe aren't, you know, don't start spending five days a week at home, but start spending one or two days a week at home, which they weren't previously able to do, and therefore do rely on their local amenities a lot more than they did previously. Thanks, Andy. Sophie? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think that that's exactly the, the ideal that you have these big cities, um, sort of mega cities, as you might call them, with a collection of neighbourhoods that sort of comprise a much larger city. So you are able to move around within the entire city by a sort of network and um, public transport, but you, locally where you live um, and, you know, these you can talk about some really big cities here, um, you do have those 
um, local amenities around you. And I, I also just wanted to, to pick up on what Andy was saying about um, what we'd probably call, I suppose, the lifestyle cities, the, the smaller cities, because um, we were already um, witnessing before the pandemic hit that actually these are the cities that were attracting more migration towards them. And I think that shift had already begun to happen in these slightly more livable cities with sort of high air quality, um, very sort of high ranking in terms of um, good places to live, um, were already becoming increasingly popular. And I think that the, the pandemic may well have accelerated that. I think this idea of the 15-minute city, is, um, as we've spoken about, is is a really um, interesting one. And, and one of the themes in terms of what will happen next that I was thinking about was this rise of local also in that, um, and we're talking about that, the context of the rise of suburban um, and high street locations. And, and if I look at my own town centre, which is Ilkley um, in West Yorkshire, we're, we're seeing kind of, a rise of these um, startup businesses, packaging free stores, local coffee shops and bars, really replacing the space that some of the chains had taken up but have you know, gone dark on or, or, or left. And what that tends to do, as far as I can see, is, is that kind of drives more life and, and heart into these local high street um, centres. But then where that leaves city centres is what are they going to be for? If, if we come into city centres, what are we going to want to be doing there? And I, I think it might have been Andy who, who made a good point earlier. You know, what we really want to do with city centres is um, it's not just about retail, it's not just about hospitality and leisure, it's, it's about workspaces, but it's also about providing experiences and that might just be concert arenas and so on when we are able to go to concerts again um, and theatres um, and, and trying really to create um, an, an atmosphere in a place that people want to and do want to go to. And people always talk, don't they, about the, the cities being the heart, the heart of a, a place and, and that does come with you know, creating something for us all to enjoy. And um, yes, we have traditionally gone into town to to work. But you know, if you if you if you're an East Enders watcher, you'd always go up west for a day out, wouldn't you? And that inevitable. I'm in Andy's camp actually, and think that it will all come back very quickly um, when a vaccine is rolled out, and we'll all f forget very very quickly. But I I wonder what it is that we really need to be doing to to make sure that that happens, to make sure that um, the heart and the soul, I suppose, remains in in city centres. Henry, any thoughts from you? So I think um, this the kind of I feel like the importance of the quality of the built environment is starting to 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 grow. So like you know these examples we had of you know the the cities that do particularly well, like cathedral cities, are pretty are, are like particularly pretty places to live. And I feel like the same is true of the big cities. The ones that are going to do well are ones that are basically are actually intrinsically attract in, attractive places to go and visit and the, the spaces within that. So I think the kind of, you know, especially like the sort of big box, the bigger, less, like more generic developments in, the, in city centers are gonna be less attractive to people than going places where there's, you know, it's, it's a, where it's an actual destination of which maybe retail is a part of, but there's something else going on there. So it's, um, 
I feel like that that really is starting to be understood as we see this, the places that are going to do well and the places doing less well. And I think, and the final thing is this, um, basically we've all got used to not commuting um, or I certainly have. Mm. And the idea of, you know, it's, it's a sort of well-known factoid that basically people don't, they, you know, you commute every day and often we, we kind of desire a bigger house and the payoff is a longer commute, but actually the kind of enjoyment of the bigger house for the longer commute, you basically, you know, it, you, that you adapt to the feeling of the nicer house. Um, but actually your daily, the, the, the longer commute is unpleasant on a daily basis and it's there every day and it gets more frustrating every day. So I feel like there's going to be a payoff in terms of the way people use, um, use cities. So not visiting them, the, the everyday commute um, will start to disappear for a lot of people and there'll be this hybrid model. And therefore, the things that attract people in cities have to be um, of a much higher quality in terms of destination because we don't have to go every day. The residential and student accommodation assets, which, um, some of the assets we've not spoken about yet, but you know they, they've, had, they've risen in popularity over the years and we've certainly seen a lot of our clients wanting to invest, develop and fund these kind of assets. But the really exciting thing about the um, BTR built to rent kind of um, assets we're seeing coming forward in the market, they are creating communities, many communities within themselves, and um, they are really looking to encourage the millennials, the younger generations to come together. It, it has been very difficult during the pandemic, there's no doubt about that, and being um, in the city centre, which is in lockdown, is not a great place to be. But what we are hoping to see in the next year or so is with the, with the vaccine being rolled out and city centres returning, that these assets will really, really come um, back into to, to, uh, popularity and um, people want to start living there again because they are um, the very places that, um, they are created, you know, for and and the same goes for student accommodation assets as well. Mm, thanks, Andy. I just agreeing with uh, with the previous panelists really in terms of quality of life, uh, sustainability, the metrics that are going to become more and more important, and that's been really brought into focus by the people being able to have a different work life balance, a different work environment over the last ten months. Uh, and we're going to see more green spaces, outdoor meeting areas and offices. You know, we want people to come back to working from the office, even if just part of the time. Then offices do need to focus more on wellness and well-being. You need to provide a working environment that, that promotes that, you know, whether that's to do with air quality, complementary fitness classes, more green spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the nature of office buildings, which was changing anyway, um, a bit like retail. It's a probably a long-term change that will be accelerated as a result of people having that choice of what environment they do their work in. Mm. Thank, thanks, Andy. I definitely want to um, talk about how easy it is to to um, deliver that quality of life and wellness in, and green places in our city. But um, Sophie, any, any thoughts from you first before we jump into that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think what Susan was saying about the residential um, side of things is is really important and particularly focusing on affordability within cities um, is, is really critical. You know, in cities like London, we do have a huge undersupply of housing and, and um, you know, there is affordab um, affordability constraints there. And, and I think some of the 
lifestyle cities that we were talking about earlier, some of those smaller, um, more livable cities often have the advantage that they are more affordable but what they need to do and what those cities what's key to keep them as attractive as they are now is that they do need to keep building the new stock so that they don't get that same constrained and sort of squeezed affordability that we're seeing in some of the the other larger cities. I'd really like us to talk about um, cost and ability to um, deliver these these new new cities and you know, we we talk about um, all of us now wanting the the quality of of life, and you know, taking examples from more livable cities. But I wonder how easy is it to turn, you know, a giant like London into a livable city, and how 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 do we pay for all that? Are, you know, are, are investors going to pay more for a um, office? building that it really does have wellness at its heart that has green spaces close to it that that is accessible within 15 minutes or you know how how are we going to do this Andy any thoughts from you I mean to answer one question whether investors will pay more for buildings that have um, you know well-being built into the fabric of them green spaces nearby etc etc then then the answer is yes um, because quite frankly what investors are interested in is how lettable it is, um, how secure your income is, and how much rental income you're going to get, and all of those three things will be, you know, positively impacted by all of those amenities, and increasingly so. It's difficult to, at this stage, put a uh, pound value, um, you know, whether it's per square foot or in yield terms, on having those amenities. But it's it is definitely all built into the prices that the people are paying for things, and it's the same with sustainability. As you know, Henry will no doubt know. There is no doubt that the additional cost of making sure your building is uh, you know as sustainable as it possibly can be um, is ultimately uh, you know in the coming years going to um, come back to you in the form of higher rents from occupiers for whom it's important um, to be in sustainable buildings and lower yields from other investors when you come to sell because they need to um, be buying buildings that are green as well. Thanks, and Andy. Henry, you, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I've been, you know, for the last sort of four, four or five years, I've been doing, you know, basically leading um, projects where we're thinking about well, but the, the, the well-being aspects of projects we're working on and uh, actually uh, delivering the things that really matter to people um, is not it's not more costly. It's just a question of reframing priorities and getting people to think about them right at the beginning of their project as a priority for the for the team and getting members of the team to just buy in to the issues that really matter. So basically they're like, you know, making sure you are providing a variety of privacy needs in the spaces that you're working on, providing access to nature in lots of different ways. Um, it's not often it's quite simple things that make quite a big difference. Um, my wife works for NHS England and in public health, and it's a similar story in a sense that it's often the small things that trip you up that really matter about basically how far you can open your windows and are they easy to operate by occupants. Those are the kind of things that actually, when you experience them, you know, if it is if it's about you know. A small, a small aspect of the design can have quite a big impact in terms of how people experience that space. Um, and some wellbeing certification picks up those elements, but actually it's about having someone to pay attention um, to some of the some of the issues that can take, you know, which have no actual effect on the bottom line. It's just a question, question of priority and paying attention at the right point during the procurement process that what matters is actually um, included. It's it's the do 
do sweat the small stuff perhaps yeah it's the really small stuff that makes buildings work or don't work um and uh yeah thinking about and, and like dealing with the procurement issues at the right moment you know the just uh basically the name of something is not the same thing as actually the experience of something um you know, if it says it's, you know, how hard, how far a window can open, it is really quite important in terms of how well an occupant feels control over their environment, for instance, or where their local controls are. So it's the small stuff that actually can make a really big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the projects that I've worked on that have really weathered this storm. So I did a, I'm working on a fit out for an office for a venture capital firm, and they were just had this space that seemed, you know, they really focused on health and well-being and sustainability two years ago when they started the project. And now it just looks like their office is going to be, it's just coming, it's going to be finished in the sort of next few months. And they've basically done all the things that people are trying to do right now, but they were just, you know, at the time when they came, when they sort of pushed ahead with this project, every, it did appear to be quite, um, you know, over the top. And now it looks like they've got it absolutely right in terms of how an office will be used now, um, you know, as a sort of, as a meeting and collection space in London for all their partners. Um, and the and the firms they work with, um, so yeah, I think health and well-being and sustainability really though the projects have done have really focused on that stuff um, have, are coming out well. And foresight, foresight always helps, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so one thing that I've been trying to do with these um, these unexpected tales podcasts of of which uh, you were number three of of four is make sure that I round them off with a with a happily ever after as um as we're all looking for the fairy tale this year aren't we and so I'd love to just um I keep saying go around the table there is no table here there's a screen in front of me but uh, go around the table and and ask each of you what you would like for cities you can pick a city if you like we can make it a UK city or or cities as a collective what what you would like there happily ever after to be to what they what you hope we will have learnt uh, and taken forward from from this very strange and unexpected time we've lived through uh, I'm going to start that question with you Susan I'd really like to see the life um, come back into cities again and not see um, almost a dust kind of um, a, you know uh, rolling around where we were previously thriving and and that goes for Leeds city centre in which our office uh, is based um, for me and uh, one of the things that um, I'm really looking forward to seeing are hospitality um, and leisure businesses in particular starting to thrive again food and beverage um, really beginning to thrive Um, I I think we're going to need the government to provide more support to those businesses beyond furlough um, in order for them to to do that in 12 months' time, for them to uh, be able to provide the kind of service and experience that they were previously able to to provide, but also so they can weather the storm of, of things like Brexit that, that are coming down the line. Oh yes, the B word. We haven't talked about that. It's too dangerous. Same question to you, Andy. What's your happily ever after? You know, I said earlier that I think cities uh, will go back to normal pretty quickly, and human behaviour will will revert to to type. Uh, but perhaps you know, thinking in a London-centric way, there is a a bright long-term outcome where um, you know it's a it's a city where the infrastructure is pretty much creeping uh, creaking rather under the the weight of use. If you look at the underground lines, 
uh, for most of the day and how busy and unpleasant they are uh, and the traffic uh, across the city, which I don't believe has been materially impacted by the congestion zone. But maybe if some of these habits from lockdown do stick, um, people come into the city three times a week instead of five times a week, maybe even four times a week. Um, and that, if that stays and that's sustainable, um, then the whole of the city just becomes a little bit more bearable and the quality of life just goes up a little bit because the trains have got a few less people on um, and all of the amenities have got a few less people trying to use them. And if you think about uh, you know, things that are already underway, like um, the way that, that London's very trying very hard to become more green in terms of transport with the low traffic neighbourhoods that you know are being rolled out in lots of different parts of London or the cycle lanes that we've seen coming up in the last five years, um, but which have been uh, you know re relatively controversial in some areas. Um, but but maybe it all starts to work just a little bit better if there's 80% less people travelling from the suburbs into the city centre every day. So I, I really want to build on what Andy said. So I think that that's a really good point around demand management. So I often talk about demand management as a future in terms of energy because um, I see it, you know, but actually in terms of people, you know, basically this new flex, I think a more flexible way of working has come out of the pandemic and a lot of people at very short notice change the way they did things and manage to stay like maintain their productivity and actually for a lot of people um it's it's increased because they have a lot more flexibility in the way they can work and i think that point about you know if you're going to come into london you might start coming into london um on the 10 o'clock train and work on the train having done a bit of work in the morning you meet some people in in london in the office you have an afternoon you go out and actually you know london like you know london being the example of the big city might work much better um for those commuting in and for those people living in london um you know that kind of that sort of i'm hoping to see more of an basically with low traffic neighborhoods a re-establishment of sort of very much local communities and that collection of that collection of visit uh villages because there's certain areas in london where that works extremely well yeah. um putney's a good example but like you know in terms of you know but you know there's still too much traffic there's too much car traffic on 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 the roads and i think if we see a reduction in that and a growth in cycling um we'll see actually a more vibrant local neighborhoods and that kind of 15 minute city in lots of basically sort of um nodes all across the city is is really like a a very positive um cleaner and sort of you know much more pleasant future for the way we've been living thanks henry um last but not least um, Sophie, what's your happily ever after? Well, I think we've just had some great, um, some great happily ever afters. Um, <laughs> that sounds very idyllic. Um, I, I, I think just sort of building on that and focusing in on on one particular thing, I'd love to see a real improvement in air quality in cities. And I think this is going to become increasingly important um, given the health focus that we've had this year um, and also sort of sustainability focus as well that's um, ever increasing. And, you know, we have seen improvements in, for example, London, where this ultra low um, emission zone has been introduced over the last four years. You've seen levels come down, but 99% of London is still above the World Health um, Organization's recommended um, air quality limits so there is still a lot more to be done um, and I think that there's a huge um, benefits and, and quality of life that can come from that. 
So I've been scribbling away while everyone has been running through their their happily ever afters. And um, I've come up with a few words, which I hope and bring it all together. And um, if this is what a city looks like, then I think um, the cities of the of the future, the cities of a post-COVID world are going to be pretty, pretty great places to, to live, work and play and invest and develop in too. So um, from that conversation, I think that we've, we've described that um, a city will be a city that can operate successfully, a city that can breathe, a city where people create communities and um, invest in those communities and really utilise them, and a city where there's life. And importantly, I think, after all of this, a city where there's fun, um, because I think that has been missing from, from some of our lives uh, during this COVID time. So a, a city where we can go out and enjoy a nice meal. We can hang out with our, our mates, hang out with our work colleagues. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But um, a future of the city that that looks like it's going to be going to be there for for all of us. I hope that sums it up well. Um, I wish we could carry on talking because there's so much more that we could dig into around um, how cities are being reimagined. But but for now, I'm going to just say thank you so much to Andy, Susan, Henry and Sophie for joining us on this third in the series of the Tales of the Unexpected. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EG Property Podcast. We hope you found the content insightful and helpful. If you'd like more of the same and to keep up with all the latest news, views, analysis and research that the EG Group has to provide, be sure to sign up to all of our property podcasts and subscribe to Radius Data Exchange for unlimited access to all of our content and comprehensive commercial real estate data. (laughs) 